0: We are in the book of Luke, chapter 22, verses 39 through 46. So turn, click, swipe, tap, do what is necessary for you to get to Luke, chapter 22. We will read it, and then we will dig in. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And and when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. I don't know if you are familiar with the story of Fanny Crosby. She was born blind or possibly She had an eye infection around six weeks old that may have caused the blindness. The year was 1820. Her father died at six months. And at age eight, she wrote her first poem. Oh, what a happy child I am, although I cannot see. I am resolved that in this world contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. So weep or sigh because I'm blind. I cannot nor I won't. She began memorizing long Bible passages at age 10 so that by 15, she had memorized the four gospels. She, she had memorized the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. She had memorized the book of Proverbs and the Song of Solomon. And she had memorized a number of the Psalms. She then learned to play and sing. She played at least four different instruments, and she became the first woman to speak in the United States Senate, advocating for the education of the blind. When she was 18, her mother remarried, had three children, and then that husband left after nine years. Fanny herself married in 1858, and though she and her husband loved each other as she said, to the end, they often spent time apart, evidently difficulties in their marriage that she apparently never got specific about. But despite all her natural and human struggles, she became one of the most prolific songwriters in American history, perhaps world history. She wrote as many as 8,000 hymns and gospel songs in addition to all the other songs and poems she wrote. In her famous Blessed assurance, the blind Fanny wrote, contemplating heaven, visions of rapture now burst on my sight. It's safe to say that Fanny had her share of struggles. How do you struggle? We Christians like to throw that around a lot. I'm struggling We struggle with evils in this world, plights that bring us down, and perhaps most of all, we struggle with sin. But when we say we're struggling, what do we mean? If we're honest, we mean I have been giving in to temptation a lot lately, and I feel guilty about it. We're not really struggling. What would it mean to really struggle against Sin against the difficulties in our lives that might lead us to curse God and die, as Job was encouraged to do, that might lead us to one type of sin or another in our heart or our deeds. This morning, we'll see that Christians do have the ability to struggle and to overcome temptation, they can struggle to victory. And we'll see three methods we ought to employ in this struggle. Method number one, pray. Jesus takes the disciples to the Mount of Olives as is his normal pattern. We've seen this over um, the the last period after him entering Jerusalem. Um, He is teaching in Jerusalem by day and retreating to the Mount of Olives outside the city by night. There is a huge crowd in town for the, the Feast of Passover, uh, probably hundreds of thousands of pilgrims are in Jerusalem, and so space is limited. And this apparently is where Jesus and his at least closest disciples are staying at night, the Mount of Olives. And as they go out, Jesus gives a command, pray that you may not enter into temptation. This tells us that prayer is the means of accomplishing the goal of not entering temptation. Now, entering temptation is giving into it. Sin is calling out, come into my house. Stay for a while. Enjoy the comforts and pleasantries. There are warm cookies in the oven, a comfortable bed, all sorts of delights. And we keep secrets real good here. Do you go in? That's going in to temptation. And we pray in order that this does not happen. It was part of Jesus' instructions in the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation. And now Jesus wants the disciples to put theory into practice. Go pray. In fact, it's so significant that it frames the passage. It's at the beginning and the end. Jesus repeats the command. Now, we know that on this side of eternal glory, on this side of seeing Jesus face to face, on this side of the history of God's creation, Christians will, from time to time, enter into temptation. We are not going to be perfect. In fact, we're going to see that Peter himself is going to fall into temptation very soon. But it doesn't have to be this way. There is no temptation that you encounter that you must give into every temptation is an opportunity to struggle and arrive victorious over that sin. Let's dig in what that looks like. First of all, be clear here, who prays? It's the Christian. The Christian who is called to pray, the disciple of Jesus, the follower of Jesus There is no guarantee here that if you are not a follower of Jesus, that you can overcome your sin and your temptation to sin by virtue of your prayer life. There is no other God who is good enough and powerful enough to help you. This is an opportunity for the Christian, not the non-Christian, not for the pretend Christian. And what is the prayer? As we saw, the prayer is for the strength to stand up against temptation. And that's important because we then know from that idea that we will face temptation. The Christian life is not one where we are freed from temptation. We are not called to live lives that avoid every appearance and sort of temptation. Rather, our lives are going to be marching through the territory of sin. And as a result, it is going to be calling out to us. And we have to, to make a choice whether we will fight or whether we will surrender. And so we pray for the strength to not surrender. When? When do we pray? We pray as often as necessary and apparently rather constantly. The disciples probably started off praying, but then they fall asleep. So clearly, Their level of prayer wasn't enough. In fact, we will see in the upcoming passages that the disciples fall away. And so our vigilance in prayer against temptation must be relatively constant. And where do we pray? Well, the location doesn't matter. Imagine we're at the office. And you are suddenly rocked by a temptation to lust after a coworker. Might it be awkward to pray in that moment? Or maybe frustrations have built up and you're about to say something hurtful to a, a neighbor. There might not be any obvious way to hide the prayer depending on the situation. And someone might see you praying or overhear you praying. But are you more concerned about how you will appear to your co-workers or your family or to your friends than how you behave before the eyes of your Father? So where and when we pray are dictated by the reality that we are in the midst of a battle, and prayer is our weapon, And we don't lay it down just because it might seem socially unacceptable or awkward. We need to pray no matter what is thought of us. Because the need is present. One more thought about prayer. How do we pray? Look at Jesus' example. Jesus gives the example for his disciples. He he doesn't just tell them to pray, but he prays himself. That he would not enter into temptation. And he agonizes over prayer. Now, if you look in your Bible, you might see some brackets, or you might see a footnote, uh, or some indication that these verses might not be original. And here's what what that means. And and I'm I'm looking here at at verse 43 and and 44. What that means is that there is the, the oldest copies of the book of Luke that we have do not have these verses in them. And so it leads to a question of whether these verses were written by Luke or somebody else. If they were written by Luke, then they are Uh, as part of the Gospel of Luke, then they're Scripture, and they are God's Word. If they were written by someone else and inserted later, then they are not part of God's Word. That said, the fact that these appear very early in the Gospel of Luke, uh, they appear very early in the copies of Luke's Gospel that we have, suggests that many, many early Christians knew of this story and Felt very confident of the truthfulness of this story. So it it very well may be true, but not be God's word, if that makes sense. But even if we take these things out, we have a sense that Jesus is praying uh, strongly. He is praying repeatedly. He is praying with a fervency. Take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. He knows that he's about to go quite literally through an excruciating trial. That word excruciating comes from the word for cross, crux, crucifix. And, and, and he is going to be, uh, on, on a human level, tempted to walk away from what he is called to do but he is given to the will of his Father. He will not give in to that temptation. So he models this prayerfulness for us with a fervency and quite possibly a graphic agonizing. And so we also must persevere in a fervency of prayer particularly when the temptation is strongest. The second thing we see in this passage, the second uh, counsel here to fight against temptation, to have victory in our struggle against temptation, is don't sleep. Don't sleep. The second time Jesus instructs his disciples on their need to pray, he finds them sleeping. And he asks rhetorically, why are you sleeping? That's not obviously a question that needs an answer. His point is that they should not be sleeping. It's the wrong action in this moment. In the other biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, John, that's what I'm referring to, Jesus is more specific with his disciples, uh, asking them to keep watch and pray. And the point is the same, even if it's emphasized more in some other places. Facing temptation requires vigilance. Sleeping causes poor decision-making. I don't know if you've noticed this, but when, when you've woken from sleep, how well do you respond to a sudden threat or a need for action? You're probably groggy. You're bleary-eyed. You're not thinking clearly. And certainly as long as you are asleep, you are you are in a dangerous position because someone can do to you uh, whatever they want to do with, to you because you are unconscious of the world around you. You are unprepared. So when you are s- asleep, you are in a risky situation. And and when you are falling asleep or just waking up, you are in a place where you tend to make bad decisions because you're not thinking very clearly. This is why we want... Coffee in the morning is to help us wake up, clear our heads, and, and make good decisions. And so, with this in mind, it, 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 Paul writes, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 5 through 8 For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. And in a similar passage in Ephesians 6, Paul writes, Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert, with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. I love it because he's, he's pulling together these same ideas that we have Jesus teaching his disciples in the garden, praying at all times, keeping alert, staying awake, being children of the day. If we want to fight temptation, we need to stay awake. We cannot be asleep. If we are spiritually asleep, it means that we are spiritually unconscious to the threat of temptation that is around us. And it could be that when we awake, even if the temptation does wake us, we will not be in a position to respond appropriately. In fact, in a few short moments, Jesus' disciples are going to see a crowd coming to arrest Jesus. Would you be better prepared to face a crowd, a hostile mob coming to arrest your cherished friend, your teacher, your mentor, Right after you've woken up or when you've stayed awake, diligently waiting for temptation's approach. Staying awake means that we are aware of the fact that temptation is out there. Imagine a soldier on the battlefield. If that soldier has not seen action for a period of time. That soldier might get complacent, might get lazy, might forget that there are, in fact, threats on the battlefield. They might get careless. They might walk outside of a safe area. They may be casual with their dress. They may be casual with their movements and so put themselves and their fellow soldiers, in jeopardy. But the soldier who recognizes that while he's on the battlefield, he cannot take anything for granted, that soldier will stay vigilant, will stay awake at all times, knowing that at any moment, fire could ring out, a missile could hover overhead, a grenade could be launched, it would be a horrible thing to be woken up to the sound of metal clanking and your platoon mate screaming, Grenade! How much better able you'd be able to handle that situation if you were already awake and alert when it came into your bunker. In the same way, we must be ready for temptation. It is out there. It is lurking. As God told Cain, sin is creeping at your door. It is seeking to overpower you. It is seeking to master you. So be ready. Be expectant. Be looking for it. Be aware of the things that lead you into temptation? What are the sirens? What are the habits? What are the patterns? What are the things in your life that are triggers for temptation? The answer isn't necessarily to avoid those, although at times that may be possible and may be wise, but the reality is is that in this life we will go through the territory of temptation. And so it is not enough to isolate ourselves from every possible temptation. We must be steeled against temptation. I think this is one of the weaknesses of the 12-step approaches. I don't have a problem with them as a whole. I, I think that they have done good work for many people, but the idea that if you have had a problem with whatever, uh, uh, narcotics or sex or alcohol, that the solution is to never touch the thing again and to stay as far away from it as possible. Uh, Of course, there's some wisdom in this. We don't necessarily want to throw ourselves into a situation. I don't think it's a good idea for men to visit strip clubs because they believe that the temptation doesn't have to get to them, so they will go to the strip club and (laughs) survive and persevere under temptation. I don't think that's a good idea. I'm not advocating that if you're an alcoholic, you should, you should go sit at the bar and see how long you can sit there without drinking. But at the same time, this idea that's, that we must uh, abstain from every possible temptation is unrealistic. Unrealistic. You're going to s- see people drinking. You're going to see billboards for alcohol. You are going to to, to see uh, uh, people smoking. You're going to smell cigarettes wherever you go. You are going to turn a corner and you're going to, to see a drug deal. You've, uh, you've been clean for 20 years and you're going to go around a corner and you're going to see a drug deal and you're going to be triggered. Oh, there's an availability in this area. That's not enough. So we have to be vigilant against temptation. How temptation gets at our heart, how it strikes us, and being ready for its attack. Stay awake. Don't fall asleep. The third, I do not want you to get the impression that this is a do-don't Sermon: Do pray, don't sleep. Do pray, don't sleep. And then you will have victory. As if that there, that there is a, a simple couple steps, a legalism toward victory over sin. That would be the wrong way to understand that. And, and we see that by looking to Jesus. Specifically looking to Jesus' victory. When all else fails, we look to Jesus' victory. See, Jesus conquered temptation. He assents to his Father's will to go through with the temptation. He comes out victoriously. Jesus Christ, in that garden, prays that if there is any way that, that, that God, the Father, might remove this cup, the, the cup refers to a time of great trial. That if if it be the Lord's will, if it be God's will, that he would remove this trial from him. But then he assents, he says, but not my will, but yours. Be done, Father. You see, there wasn't another way. And Jesus knew this. There was only one way to deal with this. He had to go to the cross. Do you know why he had to go to the cross? It's because Jesus was the perfect representation of humanity, and he was the perfect representation of divinity. He was God in the flesh. Everything that it meant, that it means to be God, Jesus is. Everything that you think of when you think of God correctly, Jesus is that omnipotent yep omniscient yep omnibenevolent all good yep jesus is that but everything you think of when you think of what it is required to be to be human every part of humanity that is necessary for it to be humanity jesus is all of that He's flesh, he's bone, he's blood. He was tempted in every way like we are. Only he fought and struggled and overcame victoriously. In every instance, so that he was without sin. The perfect representation of man and the perfect representation of God. And he did this. He suffered in this way, the limitations of our frail human form, to save sinners, to save those who, whether they struggled against sin or did not struggle against sin, failed at some point in time. And that's all of us. All of us are sinners. We have rebelled against God. We have. Thoughts we shouldn't have thought, we have done deeds we shouldn't have done, we have said things we shouldn't have said, and we have deeply offended the God who made us, and we need a way to pay off our debt. But our debt is infinite. A crime against an infinite God is a is an infinitely large crime. We can't possibly hope to pay it. And so for that reason, every one of us deserves to die a death in the fires of hell for eternity. And so Jesus makes a way. Being fully God and fully man, he is completely without sin. He is infinitely perfect. And he can take on himself on the cross the death that sinners like you and I deserve to die. And so that if we place our faith and trust in Him and turn from our sins, turn from our rebellion against God, then our debt gets placed on His body on the cross and we go free. And because He is perfect and His goodness is greater than even our evilness, let me tell you something, Jesus paid those accounts in full and had change left over. So he gets out of the grave and raises to new life, proving that he conquered sin. He conquered evil. He conquered death. And it's evidence that those who join in his victory will conquer sin and death alongside him so for those who have placed their faith and trust in jesus christ who have repented of their sins who are known as his followers the word for that is christian although many of us call ourselves christians who have never trusted in christ's sacrifice and never repented of our sins. But for those of us who have, who are properly called Christians, we can look to Jesus' victory. In Hebrews chapter 2 verses 17 and 18, uh, the author writes, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And then in chapter 4, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect, excuse me, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time. Into Paul's writing to Christians, but you will never face a temptation that is so strong you must give in to it. Do not believe that line. Instead, but with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That is grace. And one more from 1 Corinthians 15. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Christian can rely on on the victory of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, the prayers of Jesus interceding on our behalf to overcome temptation. But even when we fail, we can confidently draw near his throne because it is the throne of grace where we get mercy and grace to help in our time of need. Because he has the victory and he gives us the victory in himself, in Jesus Christ. If you have not come to know that peace, please know please know that Jesus will offer you that forgiveness, that grace, that mercy to wipe out every debt of sin and evil you have ever committed and empower you to fight the fight, to truly struggle against evil and temptation. And ultimately on the last day when battles have been waged to the best of your human frail ability